0: Hello and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Father, we do thank you and praise you for just being an awesome, awesome God, for working in our hearts and our lives and and having a heart towards us, your sheep, which have strayed and have been lost, and, and yet you seek after us. You have come for us, Father, because you love us, and that love is what separates you from the rest of this world. I pray, Father, for that spirit to be here today in our church, that you would heal and touch and minister to those that are feeling uh, confused, lost, and strayed. Father, it's a powerful parable today, and I I just pray that it would sink into our hearts and our minds, that we would understand the things that are said. Be here, as only you can be, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, We've been going through the whole book of Luke, And uh, Luke is teaching us many different things. He's showing us several things that are absolutely critical to be what we said a true disciple. We want to be a follower of the Lord. We want to be one of those people that is in the number, as they say, on Judgment Day. We'd like to be able to say, Lord, we'd like to come into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is showing us that the nation of Israel at the time when he was born was asleep, slumbering. That the world itself sits in a place of stupor. It, it sits in a place of, 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 of blindness to the things of God. A, a true disciple of God would be somebody that's awake, that would be uh, a sensitive to the things of God. We would be concerned about those things. And Jesus has been hammering home and making point after point, and especially, I think you've been watching Jesus, I think he's saying a lot of things with some shock value. He is slapping us across the face. He is saying things to get us to, to to awaken a little bit, to say, wow, that's what you're saying? He's looking for the true seed that's planted. and And I really see so much stems from the book of Luke, from chapter 8, where he speaks of the parable of the sower. Sower goes out to sow seed. Some of the seed is thrown on the road and the birds come by and gather it up. Some of the seed is thrown out into shallow soil. It sprouts up and dies because of lack of root. Other seed is thrown out there amongst the weeds and the weeds choking out so it doesn't bear fruit until finally there is the group that bears forth fruit. We want to be in that number, a true disciple. When Jesus has been hammering home to us the requirements to to be a disciple, to be awake, to be asking and thinking questions. And we said to bear forth fruit. That's what a true disciple would do. And the fruit of God is not just going out to make converts per se. It's to have the heart of God working through us to minister and to touch other people. And so we come into a, a scene in Luke chapter 15 where we get uh, three parables that are given to us, very critical parables as it all comes together, and it almost explains a lot of things that have been happening to this point. But let's read through the text and see where we stand. Chapter 15 verse one. It says, then all the he says, then all the tax collectors, ooh, we don't like tax collectors. And then the sinners. Ooh, we don't like sinners, do we? They drew near to him to hear him. Jesus was attracting a crowd of people that were undesirable. They're coming to Jesus and they're listening and they want to know more. They're intrigued by what Jesus is saying in his teachings. While on the other hand, verse 2, it says, "...and the Pharisees and the scribes complained." We have described the Pharisees as people that were religious, holy, diligently seeking God and His kingdom by trying to be as prepared as possible by doing everything they could. The scribes were people that wrote and copied their Old Testament. These religious people, if you would, and it says the Pharisees and the scribes complained. They're going, Jesus saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them saying, Jesus is seeing a group of people, the Pharisees and scribes, starting to reject the common man. Oh, we hate those people. We just can't stand people like that. You can see the prejudices, the fear, and justified or unjustified, these people could not tolerate other people. Jesus is looking at this and He wants to speak a series of parables with that backdrop. And it's interesting to see that Jesus' love really is overpowering and drawing away disciples from the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's a popularity of Jesus where these people are coming to him in abundance and these guys are almost jealous of all the people running to Jesus. And he says, with that in mind, verse 4, he says, He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, a hundred sheep, and if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. He's making a, a, an example of something common. Just these guys would understand what it is to be a shepherd. If you lost something, you would go and seek it and find it. He says verse 5 and when he has found it, he lays on it his uh, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! Let's throw a party. For I found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance." So this is a strange parable. It, it, it sounds simple enough that God is speaking about a, a, a sheep, and, and, and if you would, he almost brings this right into a personal level by saying this is really talking about you and I. It's talking about our hearts towards sinners. Very simply, you've got a crowd of people standing around that don't like another group of people. And Jesus is turning around and He says, Man, you guys don't understand. When you see people walk through the door coming into our church and they're undesirable people, then God has a chance to redeem and to save those people. And we shouldn't think the less of those people. We should realize that there's a potential for these people to come home. And, and, and this is a strange story. Uh, you have to read this. That the, It does sound almost crazy. If you were to have a hundred sheep, let's say, and one of them were to go astray, would you take the 99 and it says to leave them in the wilderness? I, there's some things that are not said in the parable that says, well, did the guy turn around and find somebody else to watch the other 99 while he was on this little hunting trip for the one? No, it's almost like he says, I'm going to leave these guys. Any shepherd wouldn't leave uh, his sheep in the wilderness. That's where the wolves and the animals and the savages prey upon your flock. Your job as a shepherd is to take care of the flock, and you would never sit down there and leave 99. Why would anyone take the 99 and leave them in a place of, of abandonment to go find one that strayed? Common sense would say you take your losses and you protect that because you wouldn't want to have 50 of your sheep devoured by the wolves when you come back from finding the one, right? You don't do that. That's illogical. It's 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 crazy. In in Jesus's teaching, uh, a, a, a concept of reckless abandonment to seek after that which was lost at the point of doing something crazy and stupid. And sometimes our desire to have uh, uh, the lost come home means that we're going to do something crazy, something reckless, something wild, something that we wouldn't normally do, something illogical. And so many times we look at life and we want to put it all into a logical little pattern and to say, well, what's going to make the most sense? I'm going to pray about this, but really I'm thinking about this, and then I'm going to make a logical conclusion. Well, God wants me to move to Oklahoma. Well, God, if you want me to move to Oklahoma, I guess, well, gee, i got a job down there in Oklahoma. It's paying me twice as much as I am now. Well, doesn't it make sense that I guess God's calling me to Oklahoma because he's opened up a door that's going to give me twice as much money? Well, how much of that is the Lord and how much is that of you having common sense being played out? I don't know. If God's calling you to Oklahoma, why don't you leave the job that's paying you twice as much, go down there where you have no idea where you're going, and say, well, the Lord's calling me. Uh, That, I would say, would be somebody who's (laughs) trying to follow God and not their own wills and ways with selfish desires intertwined. And Jesus is turning around, and he gives this parable about reckless abandonment. Now, notice in this parable, it, there, there's a strange concept that overwhelms and overrides these other three parables, or the other two that come along this. Notice, if you would, in this parable, that, uh, that he has one thing, uh, uh, one out of a hundred, he loses that, and then it almost seems that he's more excited about the one coming back than the other 99 that have stayed put. Now, that doesn't make sense. There, there is a concept, a, a principle in our hearts that we hate this very principle that Jesus is talking about. We would like to say, well, gee, Jesus, if I just always had the hundred sheep that I always had, I would always be super happy. But something in our hearts as people, we see that when we lose something, we get it back. We seem to be happier when we get it back than almost as if that when we always would have had it all along. That's a little strange. A lot of people ask the questions, God, why do you take me through this pain and suffering in this world? Why do I hurt so much? Why would God do this to me? Well, God can see that sometimes things happen in our life, we lose things, so that it, it develops a sense of chase in our life, a sense of desire for those things. So listen to this, this is very, very important, so that when we actually get it back, there is a sense of appreciation for the things that we could have or should have always had. And Jesus is looking at this, and it's a very strong principle that Jesus wants us to understand. Get this in your head. That sometimes you and I, it takes us losing something in order to appreciate what God could have given us all along. God sometimes can... Take us the easy road or the hard road? And for whatever reasons, God sometimes takes us down the hard road of life to a place that we're uncomfortable so that when we come home that we would be twice as happy as if we would have just stayed there content our whole life. We always want to stay in a comfort zone. God knocks us out of the comfort zone. You go, God, why would you do that? Because he wants to bring us back to the comfort zone. Well, why would you do that, God? I would have been happy if I would have just stayed here. That's our deception. Deception. That's what we think. God, I would be happy if I would have just stayed here the whole time. And God says, no. No, no, you wouldn't. You're going to be happier, happier, happier. If you go through the valley of the shadow of death and you come through on the other side and you find life, and I don't know what it is about us, call us lazy Americans, call us uh, the human nature, the heart of us all, that there is a, a lack of appreciation for the things of God that God knows that we don't care about until we go to a place of being lost and coming back to Him. Is that strange? It's a strange parable that just doesn't seem to make sense. And I don't know what it is about us that has to go through certain valleys in order to come back to a place that we should be in order to appreciate where we are. It, is it the lack of... of uh, uh, we need a, a, the, the sense of the chase. You, you always hear that there's girls that are... where they always they play hard to get. And, and there's something that drives a man wild about a woman that plays hard to get if it was easy to go up and say, hey, I like you, let's go get married, and she goes, okay. You'd sit down and you'd have a okay life. But, you know, if there's this woman that plays hard to get and the guy has to jump through hoop after hoop and he works and he goes through the whole process and finally he gains the prize and she says, yes, I'll marry you. He feels like he could, you know, yell it from the rooftop, scream from the mountaintops and ring the bell as loud as he can and says, woohoo, I've got the prize. There's something to that within us. I don't know why that is. We should be content to say, you want to marry? Okay. Well, see, that was easy, you know. Finding this woman stuff isn't that tough. But we don't like that. It doesn't stimulate. There's, 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 there's a part of you and I that, whether we like it or not, has a thrill to the chase. A man likes the hunt. He likes the pursue. He likes to go through the work of going after things. And Jesus is playing upon that string, if you would. And, and it comes down to big big concepts. We do take things for granted and we don't appreciate the things that God has given us. And that is a problem in God's eyes. Let's work with a few concepts here. So he goes into a second parable. And he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Oh, and when she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. Rejoice with me, for I've found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, Jesus puts it in context, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Once again, Jesus is putting this into a specific context over us having a heart and desire for the lost people. But he's putting it into a simple principle again. Picture this lady. She's looking at her silver coins, if you would. Silver is not as valuable as if this were gold. A lot of people can read this and say, well, maybe the lady was really poor. And for her, silver meant everything. You know, uh, the word there is the drachma. It's the word that... It's not, you know, 70 pounds of gold that she lost. It's a... Small, insignificant amount. Uh, uh, You know, it's not quite our quarter, if you would, but it's a a couple-dollar coin. You almost read this and think of of her greed and, and her desire for money would cause her to go out and to clean the house. So you can ask the question, if this lady didn't lose her silver coin, would she have cleaned the house? (laughs) Interesting question. Ah, the house could sit there for as long as it can. And you're seeing the concept of work being initiated, energy being put forth because there was something that could have been taken for granted. It's now being lost. She's got to exert herself to do something which may have eluded her to say, I will be doing my due diligence in order to find what should be mine. That, that's what happens in you and I. We should be able to look at people, when we see that they are lost and strayed from God, our heart can never be to discard them, to put them aside, and to turn around and to uh, eliminate them from God. And I'm sorry, you and I have no appreciation for certain people. We take so much for granted. And we want everyone just to be nice and clean and happy. And and we don't like certain things to come into our life. And Jesus is trying to stimulate us, to, to, to rock our boat, to say we need to do our due diligence. So then he comes into the granddaddy of the parables. Verse 11. And then he said, a certain man had two sons. So if you would, you're watching a reduction from 99 to 1 lost to 10 to 1 being lost, and now it's going to be a 2 to 1. And then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them, the younger, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. I want my inheritance early. So he divided to them his livelihood. Both sons seemed to get their cash early before the death of the father. Well, the story goes, and not many days after, soon enough when the young one gets cash in his hand, the younger son gathered all together he uh, altogether he journeyed to a far country, gets up, leaves home. I'm out of here, dad. And there wasted, wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And so hence the the parable is called the prodigal son. To to live a prodigal lifestyle means to live a loose lifestyle. It means literally to squander, to be wasteful, to be a reckless spendthrift. This guy says, I just received a ton of money. A fool and his money are soon parted, as they say, and he is throwing cash everywhere. Sooner or later, though, he's tapped out. Verse 14, he says, but when he had spent all, well, now the problem strikes. He says, there arose a severe famine in the land. It's always amazing how you think you can always get by, but then a real crisis hits you. That you were not calculating on. There arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. Became a slave, a worker employed by somebody, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, pigs. And as he's there, it says, uh, out there feeding these pigs, that he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And so here he is, he's out there, and how low is low to go? This guy's out there saying, I can't even eat what a pig eats. I'm poor, I'm broke, I'm destitute, I've squandered everything that I have, and now I'm looking at this food that a pig would eat, and I'm lower than a pig. He would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And yet, (laughs) no one gave him anything. You would have think that uh, after you with your big uh, 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 wad of cash that you're blowing on all your buddies and buying drinks at the bar for everyone, that one of them would have turned around and said, Hey, you were there blowing your million-dollar inheritance on me. Now I can turn around and take care of you. (laughs) Welcome to the reality of the world, people. They don't care about you. The leech has two daughters, it says in Proverbs. Give and give. <laughs> the world just sucks you dry. And it takes and it takes and it takes and it has no remorse and no desire to ever give back to you. And yet so many people feel that they can go invest in the world. I'm going to go take all my money and throw it on my friends and I'm sure that they're going to be there for me. Poor investment. Poor investment. No one gave him anything, but when he had come to himself, and I like that verse. The guy's waking up from his stupor. He's no longer sleeping. He's saying, "This pain in my life is causing me to wake up from my stupor and my slumber." When he come to himself, he goes like, "Man, what am I doing out here? How did I get this far?" He said, "How many?" He said, "How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough, uh, bread enough, and to spare?" And I perish with hunger. Man, back home, anybody that worked on the farm that my dad had, man, they were all eating fine. And here I am, lower than a pig. And I perish with hunger. I'm going to starve to death out here. So as he's coming to himself, coming to his senses, he comes to the realization, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, 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 please make me like one of your hired servants. Dad, I just need a job. I'm sorry I played the fool. I'm an idiot. I'm waking up. But you know what, Dad? You treat me better than anyone else out here. I would rather be your slave than to be the slave of the world. He's understanding the heart of God at this point. And though, as he wakes up, he arose and he came to his father. That's going to be hard to crawl back to dad. And you can just see him thinking about everything. Man, they're going to be laughing at me. They're going to be ripping apart. Man, my dad is going to sit me aside and lecture me and tell me what an idiot I am. I don't blame him. I'm expecting that. And you can just see him swallowing real hard as he's walking past the mailbox up the road to his house. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, and these are the key words, and had compassion. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. So dad comes running out and says, Here's my son, I love him. And he's smothering the guy with kisses. And the son said to him, Dad, 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 you don't get it. I've blown all the money. I'm broke, I'm starving. I wish I would be coming home now and, 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 and have a, a huge investment in how wise I've been with the money, but I'm a loser, dad. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Don't Don't kiss me, dad and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to the servants, No, I don't care about the money. I don't care about anything. He says, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandal on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. I want to have a big old party because my son's home. And let us eat and be merry. Why? Very important. For this my for this. My son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So father is turning around and he's saying, Man, I don't care about them. I care about you. I love you. I'm a people person, the father would say. And I'm going to love and I'm going to chase after and I'm going to seek you. And so you can see that Jesus is teaching on the true heart of God. The Father in this situation is God. And God is turning around and He sees one sinner repent. He's going to throw a party. When He he leaves the 99, He goes after the one, He's going to rejoice. When it's the lady that finds the coin, He's rejoicing. When it's the Father who sees the Son, He's rejoicing. God's heart, God's desire is to see people come to repentance. We can't believe that sometimes. We're like the son saying, Dad, you won't love me. You won't reject me. I'll do anything to be around you, Dad. But who? Why, why would you ever want me, God? And God says, man, I'm in the people business. You're my son. I love my son. I don't care about the possessions, the cash, or anything else that's there. I care about you. And so a lot of us can see many good applications in that part of the parable. But really the parable is about his older son, the brother that stayed behind. This is the heart of the parable. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So brothers out there, he's seeing the big old party. So he called one of the servants and he asked him these, what these things meant. He goes, what's going on back at the ranch there? What, what's the party all about? So the other ranch hand turns around and he said to him, he goes, well, hey, your brother's come home and because he's received them safe and sound, hey, your father's killed the fatted calf. We're having a party. Your brother's back. What? The older brother is mad. And he was angry, and he would not go in. I don't want to go to the party. I'm not going to be there. I don't care about any of this stuff. How dare my stupid brother come home? You can hear him cursing out there. And so probably somebody said, man, your other son out there, dad is, is throwing a temper tantrum outside. So therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. He's going, hey, boy, boys, listen, hey, Please. And so he answered and he said to his father, he said, lo, these many years I have been serving you. Hey, kid, you're my you're my older son and and we've been serving with you and for you. And he goes, I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. Oh, he says, this is the son speaking to the father. Sorry. He says, lo, these many years I've been serving you. The son saying, hey, look, I've been giving everything to you, dad. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet. You have never gave me a young goat, not even a goat, never mind the fattened calf, that I might make merry with my friends. Why don't you care about me, Dad? But as soon as this son of yours came, oh, my little brother comes in here who's devoured your livelihood. He's spent all of our cash, destroyed the farm with harlots. Come on, Dad! You killed the fattened calf for him? Give me a break, Dad! And so the father responds, and he said to him, Son... You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right; what I'm doing is good. He says it's right that we should make Mary and me glad, for your brother was dead and come to life, and was lost and is found. Man, this is a strong <laughs> parable. And what you're really seeing is that there's several things going on with the heart of God that are being brought out through the situation. God is saying, I'll take something that was lost and brought back to me, and I'm excited over that, compared to the son that stayed was faithful to keep the commandments was a good boy, worked on the farm, did all that he could. And we hear this and we go, hey, Dad, that's a little wrong. Don't you think you should take care of the good boy? Don't you think the older son should have had a party thrown at the time? Why, Why would a father care more about a lost son that came back that squandered all the money? Dad, you're dumb. Dad, you're stupid. Dad, you're playing this wrong. This kid's got a case. The older son would say he's got a case against this. And really what you're seeing is that this parable is making several bold statements. But the first statement is that we are seeing in light of the rest of what's been happening in the book of Luke, that the parable is about Israel. Israel in this story would be the older son. It was faithful to wash its hands and to cleanse itself and to keep its Sabbath. It did all that it could to be home while the rest of the Gentile world, you and I, the prodigal son who are living out as heathens away from the things of God. Maybe many Gentiles come from a life of drunkenness, stupor, and prostitutes. And God seems to take us Gentiles into the world. And God is throwing a celebration over the Gentiles coming back into the fold of the kingdom of God. And even at the expense, hear this, that here's the nation of Israel that was good and trying and working to impress God, God is saying to Israel, as good as you are, You don't understand the first iota of what God is because you do not have the heart of God because the heart of God is a heart of compassion and doesn't care about the possessions but cares about people. And when you become so religious that you start to discard people in light of being right before God, you are exchanging and losing everything it is to be right with God, his heart. And the heart of God is one to say, I don't care. I don't care about anything that's ever happened or could happen to anyone, but if they're willing to wake up and to come home, man, I'm happy. I'm happy. And God up in heaven, clearly this is tying in about one sinner coming to repentance, putting the three parables together. This is coming into a situation where clearly we are seeing that if you put this in context with the rest of what was happening, that Jesus was coming into Israel and Israel just didn't care about the people. We watch Jesus come into the synagogue and there's the man with the withered hand. And the Pharisees are sitting down there saying, Oh, if Jesus heals this dude... And I'm going to get mad at him, and we're going to call him a false prophet, <laughs> not caring about the guy. Hey, look, my hands withered, and now it's straight. We saw that the Pharisees were more concerned about the washing of hands and whether they washed their hands on the Sabbath, and they wanted to stone Jesus and kill him because he was, you know, wash. He didn't wash his hands properly, ceremonially, and how they could come against Jesus because of their rules and regulations. We watched, as you can see, time after time that, uh, that uh, there was a lady last, year, uh, last week that had the uh, 18 years she's bent over and she's crippled. And Jesus is saying, hey, look at this lady. Don't you? If you were to take your, doc, your, your donkey or your ox, you would go out and take care of it on the Sabbath. But you don't even care that this lady for 18 years, we read it twice, Jesus answered and he said to them, Hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, she's a Jew, whom Satan has bound. Think of it, Jesus goes, put that in your little brain. For 18 years, she's been suffering. Be loose from the bond on the Sabbath. Don't you think even on a good old Saturday, we could set her free? On a religious day, we could set her free? And when he said these things, his adversaries were put to shame. And you're seeing clearly, Jesus is going, Hey, look, you're seeing somebody that's hurt and in pain, and you throw them in the trash. And Jesus asked, Don't you think she should be set free? Don't you think this is the very person that needs to be loved the most? And we put this right into the church today, and I'm sorry we have become no smarter than Israel in so many senses. We look at somebody walking into the church with a weird haircut and a weird pierced something or other, and we just go, what a freak. God doesn't like people like that, and we can come up with all of our reasons on why that person just needs to be kicked to the curb. We have a thousand different prejudices inside of ourselves. And we sit down and say, well, God, only an idiot would be like that. Well, yeah. Uh, Well, only, you know, stupid people that fall into sin do things like that. Well, okay. And Jesus is saying, very good. But those are the people we want to bring back. Who cares about the 99 righteous? And there's a play on words here on on who are the 99 righteous. There are no righteous. We're all sinners in the eyes of God. It's only a matter of deception. Because we think that we stand and we take it for granted where we are in our life. And we have no appreciation inside of us to be able to sit down and to really know where we stand with God. And sometimes God takes us through the valley of the shadow of death in order just so that we could turn around and appreciate God. Common sense would say. Brother, how's your life? Oh, well, it's going pretty good. Hey, brother, start appreciating it. Because you know what God does to make you appreciate it? He, he, he loves you. He cares about you. But sometimes He works this work in our life. And He wants us to have a stronger bond of love with Him. That's all He wants. He wants us to appreciate it. And, and it comes down to our heart. And our heart is always put into check. When we see that we discard people so readily, and God forbid that we become like Israel that sits there, that works out on the farm and says, I've kept the commandments, I've done all these things, but I will not love and I cannot, listen to what it all boils down to, I cannot forgive. And a lot of us as Christians just have the hardest time forgiving certain people. And you know, it's sad. There, there, there's a multitude of idiots in this world. Don't get me wrong. But there are a few idiots that come to a place of repentance and actually turn to the church and to a Christian brother and says, man, I know that I've done wrong. Will you take me back? Can we restore? Can we ever rebuild what we once had? And I am shocked at the level of mature Christians that turn around and says, I'm sorry, brother, we can't. We can't come back. We can't go back. We won't do this. You're out of here. It's over with. It's done. It's a burnt bridge. <sighs> Got to be able to forgive somebody. That's the heart of God. God's in the forgiving business. We have to be in the forgiving business. We should be able to turn around and to almost have, listen to this, a sense of reckless abandon. To go after another sinner and to take him back into the fold. What, you want me to leave the 99? Leave him up there on the hills in the wilderness? with them? I wouldn't do that. I'm responsible. And Jesus says, throw responsibility to the wind. You want me to take someone back? I took this guy back and he stole all my money and smoked crack. And now you're asking me to take him back again? I wouldn't take that person back. He's a crackhead. We know how crackheads are. Jesus, you're, you're killing me. There has to be a level of of, of trust and respect and, and and due diligence. You know, be smart as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And I'm not discarding that. I, I want the the, the message is to point at our hearts and to ask if there's a willingness on our part to actually embrace another brother that has fallen and squandered everything on prostitutes. You can't find a more graphic illustration here. Jesus is like, yeah, the guy was wrong. He was a brother. He should know better. He was raised in the father's house. You can't give the guy an excuse in the world. He squandered all of his money. He's out there feeding pigs. He comes crawling back home, and you can almost see the brother saying, don't you think we should make him pay? We've got to make this guy pay for what he's done. At least take him out and give him three lashes, Dad, for what he's done. Nah, put the put the ring on his finger, rejoice, slaughter the fattened calf, and I'm happy. Because it's a strange principle that's being taught that once was lost, now comes home. That's the heart of God. He, he's, into, he's into us knowing the heart of God. The first parable, you see that lamb, sheep, whatever. And, and if we know anything about shepherding and I know very little Uh, the story goes that when the shepherd finds a lamb that starts straying from the flock and doesn't know the voice of the shepherd Jesus said the sheep know my voice and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, A shepherd in this situation would take that little lamb that always strays and always goes away he finally chases down that lamb he picks up that lamb and he takes that lamb and he breaks the lamb's leg. So you, you see, you're that little lamb over there that goes chasing off to the flock. And when Papa Shepherd comes over to you, he grabs you, snaps your little leg. Ow! Then he takes that, sh- that little sheep, lamb, takes it and he throws it up on his shoulders and he says, I'm going to carry you for a while. And that's just what he's doing. He's picking that up on his shoulders and now he's got that lamb, that sheep sitting there on his shoulders with a broken leg. He can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. And that sheep starts to develop a, a, a dependency upon the shepherd. He starts to smell the shepherd. He starts to listen to the shepherd's uh, a voice. But most importantly, with that sheep that's you know thrown over the shoulders, his ears now is on the shepherd's chest and he starts to hear and understand the heart. Of the shepherd, and so over the next few weeks, as the as the as that uh, 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 leg is starting to heal, and then when he starts to walk again, and the sheep is now getting bigger and and, and able to walk, then that little sheep turns around and says, "I don't ever go far from the shepherd because I spent two weeks on his shoulders, and I know the heart of that shepherd." And God is saying, I, I, "I'm going to take you, and as you run and stray from God, I'm going to break your leg." So that you understand what it is to come close to my heart so that you would never stray from the pack. Because when you do stray from the pack, that's when you are vulnerable to the wolves. And a shepherd's heart is one to say, I care about the least, the most insignificant, the smallest. And God wants us to see his heart. And sometimes as we stray and we feel that we're losing it, he's just saying, I'm trying to bring you closer to me. In the parable, the lady with the ten coins, we said that the silver, the drachma was not like you know all the tea in China type thing. But what happens when you see, and it, we might lose a little bit in the translation here, but a lady with ten coins, during the time and the culture, it was a, a, a something that a woman would wear. She'd you know pierce, drill a hole in each one of the coins, and she'd make a, a necklace, a garland is what it would be called, of the ten silver coins and inside of that garland, you know, so if you saw a woman walking down the street, she'd be wearing a certain necklace made out of ten silver coins. That's what, uh, you know, they'd have the bride dance at the wedding, and she'd put this together, and then she could wear that as she's walking down the street, and anybody would say, that's a married woman. She's wearing the garland of her ten coins. It's not like it's, you you know, big diamonds. It's not like it's the most precious thing in the world, but it represented something. It represented that she was a married woman. And, and 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 as we have a, a relationship with God, we're married to God, heart to heart. And, and there's something in the symbolism there to say, well, God, I know what represents my heart to you. And if I were to lose part of something that represents me being married to you, I would seek after because who wants nine out of ten coins? It's it's a bad. <laughs> omen, a bad sign, a bad picture, a bad illustration. I'm nine-tenths married to God. No, I don't want that. I don't know. There was an old movie, The Deer Hunter, that was about Vietnam or something, and they had that symbolism of the gal going off where her husband's getting ready to go to Vietnam and she's drinking the communion cup on our wedding and she spills the The wine on her wedding dress and and there's such bold symbolism of the blood that's going to be shed in Vietnam on her purity of her wedding dress. And you go, oh, that's not a good picture as you're drinking your communion cup and you're spilling wine, blood all all over your wedding gown. Bad picture. And in a sense, you got 9 out of 10. Well, God, I'm kind of faithful to you. So that's why this woman would say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to find this 10th coin. Not that I need the cash. Not that I'm greedy. It's because I don't want that to to represent that my heart would be impure. And we should be having due diligence in our life to turn around and to say, Lord, I will do whatever it takes to maintain uh, the right heart with you to have your heart, God, towards the lost. And if that was in our lives, to be awake, to be quickened, then we would see the brother that went astray, and we wouldn't discard him, we wouldn't eliminate him, we wouldn't judge him, we wouldn't sit down and kick him to the curb. We would see the brother and say, Lord, reckless abandonment, due diligence to have the true heart of God. God's heart, first and foremost, primarily, is to forgive and to love. And if your Christianity is something first and forgiveness second, your Christianity is warped, wrong, perverted, and foul. Period. The church today has almost become a, a prodigal, in the sense that it's taking the heart of God and squandered it out to be nothing. We don't care about love. We don't care about this. All we now has become is a church of possessions and money and materialism. And you and I turn around and we look at everything in the sense of possessions and materialism and what we can gain. And we always judge our successes upon how much materialism and possessions that we have. And God has clearly taught us it has nothing to do with the possessions. It has nothing to do with the track record of where people come through. It comes to people having the heart of God. And to know the heart of God is to have a heart of compassion. Period. It's always been God's heart. That's always the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. That Jesus would turn around and to say, Israel, do not lose this. And clearly this parable is speaking that Israel has lost its heart. Backing up a little bit more in context, we can see that Jesus just a few chapters ago says, and He said to them, strive to enter the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. A lot of people want to go to heaven, but it's a narrow way to get there. He says, when once uh, uh, the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He will answer and He will say to you, I don't know you. Where are you from? Depart from Me, all you workers of iniquity. And then He says, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, clearly Jewish, and all the descendants of the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Can you hear Jesus saying this to a bunch of Jews? You're going to be thrown out and you're not making it into the kingdom because God doesn't know you. And I would say it's because they don't have the heart of God. And then Jesus says, oh yeah, but they're going to come from the east, from the west, from the north and the south to sit down at the kingdom of God. Who's from the east, the south, the north and the west? All them Johnny Gentiles. Every little thing that God could scrape up off the bottom of the barrel as He spoke to us in the last parable to say, I'm throwing a, a wedding feast. I'm sorry, last week in a parable where He throws the wedding feast and he, he invited certain people and they said, Oh, I got oxen. I just got married. I got every excuse in the world. I don't have time for your God. And then God says, Well, then you go out into the highways, into the byways. You compel them to come in. I'll take anything. I'll scrape all the way to the bottom of the barrel because I'm inviting someone to the feast And they need to be brought in. God's heart is to say He cares and loves for sinners while the first people that were invited rejected Him. The older son rejected the heart of God. And God is saying, it's a radical statement. I'll take Johnny, sinner, scumbag that comes walking into my heart, into my kingdom, and at least can say, I'm unworthy to be your son. I'm I don't deserve this. Why would you want to love me? That's got to be true love, God, to love someone like me. And when you understand that and come to your senses and recognize you're not worthy, that God's heart is love, and it's better just to be a worker on the farm than it is to be out here in the world with a bunch of backstabbing people, you're going to start to understand the true heart of God, and you will show compassion towards others. They're going to come from the east to west, north and south, sit down at the kingdom of God. Indeed, those who are last will be first, and the first will be last. See how this is all coming together now through the last few chapters? What God is trying to bring about, absolutely critical to you and I, that Jesus is speaking some bizarre parables with bizarre illustrations that are illogical, because He wants you and I to think like the heart of God and not necessarily the way of the world. And God is trying to shatter some very hard, stubborn people. And within the church today, there are very hard, stubborn people that systematically use the Bible to eliminate, ostracize, and destroy another person. And God's saying, man, get my heart right. Sure, there's penalty for sin. Sure, there's things that are going to happen. You go out and squander the things of God, you're going to be out there living like the pigs. And God, we're not stopping that. But when you got someone out there living like a pig and he's seeking the truth, don't you be the one that puts another barrier in that brother's way. Bad, 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 bad. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And you're going to be out there screaming, saying, God, let me in. Hey, I was a good Christian. I read my Bible. I sat down there and stood up for all the good things of you. And, and when I saw somebody, I really kicked him out of the church because I got such a level of holiness, God. Get out of here. I don't know you. What? Me? I'm Johnny Christian here and I've done everything for you. I've got the rules, and regulations. I've kept everything, God. I'm a good person. Get out of here. You don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. I don't know you. You want to know God. You want to be a true disciple. You want to bear forth fruit. You better understand that God's heart is one of love and compassion. Just a real quick little verse for you. Jeremiah chapter 3. God's heart in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He says, return back slidden Israel. The backslide. You're not going forward, you're going backwards. And God's heart towards Israel, Old Testament here, is saying, return, come on home. Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. Amen. I will not remain angry forever. Only, only acknowledge your iniquity Lord, I'm a sinner. Iniquity is to transgress the ways of the Lord. He says, only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You have been wrong in squandering the things of God. And you've scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. I don't want to go into exactly what that means, but it's basically saying you've taken things and you've squandered it. You've lived in as a prodigal son, you've, you've thrown it to other foreign gods underneath every green tree. You've prostituted yourself out in so many words. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you've transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed, and I love this, my voice, says the Lord. As God's calling us, we should know His voice because our, we need to know His heart. And I love this verse. He says, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord. You're my children. And then notice what he says, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, utopia, where God exists in perfection. And I will give you, I like this, shepherds, According to my heart. Who will feed you. Calvary Chapel, where the sheep like to eat. Who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Here's God, He's crying out to Israel, Old Testament, man, Israel just sinned bigger than Texas. You can't find people that have made bigger fools than themselves than the Israelites. and God's heart from Jeremiah say, "Please come home, please come home." God is the same yesterday, today and forever. God's not changing. The New Testament God of forgiveness is not something different than the Old Testament God. God's heart back then was, "Please come home, please, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to beat you. I love you." And, and I love this. Check out this verse. This is a strange verse. He says, Returnal back, slidden, sliding children. He says, you're my child. Right? So if God's turning around, and He's saying in one sense, you're my child, and at the same breath, He turns around and He says, for I'm married to you. What kind of dad marries his daughter? <laughs> right? That's what strikes my mind. It's kind of, kind of weird. I'm God's child, and plus I'm married to Him. And I like this. And he says, I will take you from a city, one, two, and a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds. So in the same verse, all in the same verse, you're seeing children, you're seeing shepherds, you're seeing being married, all thrown in together, where God is saying, and it's all coming down to knowing what? My heart And that's what brings us all together. And it's almost like Jesus read this. You almost think Jesus was reading this. And he says, let me give you a parable about the 99 sheep. Let me throw in about the woman and how she was married with her coins. And then I'm going to sit down and talk about a son because you're my child in the father heart of God. I think it's amazing. I don't know. And Jesus wants to feed us with knowledge and understanding so that we understand the heart of God, so that we would sit down and be shepherd according to God, that we would be able to sit down and say, Lord, I want to be part of your family. I want to be part of your kingdom. And all that comes down to is knowing the heart of God. And all that boils down to is being able to love, big word, compassion for the lost. So if you'd like to walk out of here and say, Lord, I want to be a true disciple, Lord, I want to be awake. I want to be sensitive to who and what you are. I want to be bearing fruit. And Jesus is telling us you can bear no fruit if you do not have my heart. You have God's heart, then you will start to exercise compassion towards the lost and you will reach out and your heart will be broken when you see people sin and you're not going to be full of anger and righteous indignation and rip everybody apart. You're going to sit down and say, Lord, I see Johnny over there, man, and he's breaking my windows and he's stealing my stereo out of my car Even while in my church, (laughs) someone got their car broken into last week. And you go, do you want to hate that guy? Do you want to kill that guy? Maybe when we'll post some guards out by the door and then there'll be three or four of the elders have baseball bats and we see somebody breaking into our car, we'll go smash their heads in. Ah, Yeah, that's vengeance. But vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And when somebody walks in here and says, you know, I used to be doing this and now I need to come in and I need to get my heart right. We need to love those people, welcome those people and and care about those people. And and, and, that's qualified by people that need to come to God. I'm not saying just love every dirtbag out there. I'm saying when people come, I want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. I want to represent God faithfully and show people that anybody can be loved and accepted into God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, there's just a tall order being given here, Father. Because it's not our heart, Father, to have reckless abandon towards the lost. It's not our heart, Father, that pursues with due diligence the things that represent our our walk with You. It's not our heart to forgive, Father. We need a heart transplant, Father. We need You to come into our lives to fill us with Your Spirit. And what You are requiring of us, Father, is to acknowledge our sin, our iniquity, and our shortcomings, and to plead upon You, Father, to instill in us Your heart. So, Father, we freely acknowledge our weaknesses. We freely acknowledge that this heart of love sometimes doesn't dwell in us. But we pray, Father, that You would fill us with Your Spirit. That You would change us, Father, so that we can become Your sons and daughters. So that we'd be married to You, Father, and that we'd be the sheep of Your field. Father, We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and we give you all the glory, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.